Good evening, dear people of God, those of you who are worshiping with us in person as well as those of you who are worshiping with us via live stream. Let me encourage you, uh, if you have a Bible, to take it and turn with me to the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 10. We have been looking together at these seven I am predicated utterances of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. And we come tonight to the fourth of these. We're in verse 11 of chapter 10. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. John chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, I'd like to read all the way through verse 18. Hear the word of the true and living God. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door by the shepherd, enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. And leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said, Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and finds pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it, have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that... I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. I encourage you to seek the Lord's face with me as we ask his blessing upon the ministry of this, his holy and infallible word. Let us pray. O Holy Father, we bow in your presence, conscious, O God, that if we are to receive any good from the instruction of your word, it must be through the efficacy of your Holy Spirit. And we would cry out, O Lord, that you would be pleased to send him upon speaker and people alike in copious measures. And we ask, O Lord, that he would come and be our teacher in this hour. Be pleased, I ask, O God, to negate and neutralize all of the inadequacies and ineptness of the one who would preach. And Father, be pleased to bless this, your precious word, to the good of these, your dear people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I am, Jesus says, the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, very clearly, we have been observing in these studies that Jesus was self-consciously always speaking about himself. And he did so not only in ways that were staggering to the imagination, but in ways that were highly provocative to the crowds to whom he addressed himself. In chapter 8, having declared himself to the Jews there, that he was the one sent from the Father, come down to the world to give his life for the world. You'll recall that they responded by saying, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And as they listened to Jesus and as they observed his radical egocentricity, how provocative he was in emphasizing himself. They were greatly offended. And he provoked them to such a pitch and to such an extent that they could not make sense of his words. And so in turn, they accused him of being the Samaritan and of being demon-possessed. For that was the only explanation, the only conclusion they could draw in their attempt to understand how this man could speak so self-centeredly about himself. And yet, even as Jesus was speaking so self-centeredly, so stunningly, so provocatively about himself, there was nonetheless nothing pompous, pompous, nothing arrogant, nothing narcissistic in what he said. And as I read these extraordinary egocentric words of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the bread of life, that he is the light of 
of the world, that he is the door of the sheep, that he is the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection, and the life. It seems to me that such words strike us and confront us with such blunt and abrupt egocentricity. They are nevertheless profoundly textured by the very character and life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as he utters these statements, all of the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 42, it's amazing how they come through. You'll remember that our pastor Wagner just read from us verses 10 through 25 of Isaiah chapter 42. But there at the beginning of the chapter, we see in the first servant song of Isaiah 42 concerning Christ, that even though our Lord is so egocentric, nonetheless it is true that he will not cry out, nor will he raise his voice, nor calls his voice to be heard in the street. My point is not that the Lord Jesus Christ would never have been an open-air preacher, for he often was. But he never indulged in self-advertisement. He would say all that he said and do all that he did with an overt humility which served to texture and nuance his radical egocentricity of his self-conscious identity. Now thus far, we've seen our Lord speaking of himself as the bread of life who has come down from heaven to give his life for the world. He's called himself the light of the world and that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we saw last time that he described himself as the door, which if anyone enters thereby, he or she will be saved. But for the Jew who had been listening to him, perhaps the most provocative statement he had uttered was the one that was made back in the 8th chapter in verse 58, when Jesus said, before Abraham was... I am. And I don't think that Jesus was saying simply that he preceded Abraham in terms of chronology, which to be sure was true, but he was claiming much more. And to the Jewish mind, it echoed the revelation of God in the third chapter of Exodus, where Moses encountered the living God in the burning bush. And Moses said, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God says, you say to them, I am has sent me to you. Now, Jesus speaks of himself as the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And it seems to me here that Jesus is being what we would call in hermeneutical terms, ep exegetical. In other words, he wants to explain in detail how he is the door of the sheep. 
And we saw last time, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And what he is doing now, I think, is explaining to us in what sense he is the door by whom we enter into the salvation of God and all of its fullness. And he is telling us that he is the door to the sheepfold of, the God, of God, not merely by virtue of his incarnation, but by the grace of his propitiation. That he is the door of access into the fellowship of God, not merely because he himself has been joined to our own frail flesh, but that in that frail flesh, he has come to make propitiation for sin. He has come to appease, as it were, and to turn aside the righteous wrath of God against sin and to restore us to God in himself. In other words, he is the door because he is the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And that is an important connection in this passage. Now, as we saw last time, it is absolutely clear that there is an Old Testament background and context to these words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps the passage that helps us best to enter into the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ is that which we saw last time in Ezekiel chapter 34. This prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Some a man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, those men who had been publicly set apart and anointed and ordained to be the spiritual leaders and caregivers, directors and nourishers of the flock of God, say to them, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds Feed the flocks. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings. You do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick and own. And the Lord says they were scattered. And so the Lord proceeds to say, As I live, says the Lord God, surely my flock became a prey, and my flock became food for every beast of the field. Because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherd search for my flock. But the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. And then he continues in verse 11, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. I will establish, verse 23, one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And what we see here, as I noted last time in John 10, is a partial fulfillment 
of Ezekiel 34, that the Lord himself would come, and that in his coming he would provide in himself a shepherd for them whom he calls my servant David, who by that time had been dead for some 400 years. But David was the great type of the shepherd king who would come and who would perfectly fulfill all of the previous shepherd kings that they had sadly failed to fulfill. Now throughout all of its history, Israel, which was at that time the visible form of the people of God, the church, Israel had literally been saturated with covenant privileges, blessed among all the peoples of the earth, and yet had been at the mercy of self-serving, self-seeking shepherds. Again, we saw last time that Jesus speaks of them in John 10, verse 8, saying, All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear, did not listen to them. And of course, I think in part that he is speaking about the messianic pretenders, but more to the point, I think he has in mind the false-hearted shepherds, men who had no interest in the spiritual good of God's people. But then he speaks more about them, you'll notice, in verse 12. And he refers to them as hired hands. I think that the authorized version's translation of this is a little bit more vivid in its imagery. Uh, refers to them as hirelings, men who were simply engaged to look after the flock. It was their job, but it was not their calling. It wasn't their heart longing. They were merely doing what they were paid to do. And really the word hireling says it all, does it not? Men who had no heart for the people of God. Men who had no concern for anything but themselves. And that's the way it has been so often in the church of God throughout the ages. The church has been bedeviled, literally bedeviled by false shepherds throughout its history. And they continue to the present day. They're literally everywhere. And it's not always easy to detect such people. But our Lord identifies them in Matthew 7 as wolves in sheep's clothing. They looked the part for a time, but by their fruits, our Lord assures us, Matthew 7 and verse 20, you will know them. And remember how Paul, remarkably, I think, in Acts chapter 20, as he addresses the elders at Ephesus for the final time. And remember, Paul had ministered in Ephesus for nearly three years, laboring night and day among them in tears and trial. Nonetheless, he prophesied to them this warning, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, 
From among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Perhaps among the very men that Paul himself had taught or Paul and his apostolic delegates ordained to the leadership and pastoral care of the church in Ephesus were men who were nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing. Just because someone speaks the right language is not itself a true sign that he is a true shepherd. A commitment to sound reformed theology is not a sign that someone is a true shepherd of God. Because true biblical doctrine can be promoted and preached harshly and in a very cold way. And there can be nothing more than a metallic ring about it. And isn't that the point, the point of the Apostle Paul in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians? Which, by the way, has nothing to do with a hymn to love. Whatever 1 Corinthians 13 is, it isn't a celebration of a hymn to love. It is a devastating, cutting, searing castigation of the pride that had infected the Corinth church. And Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. I had become as a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now it is against this background that Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And then he says something almost identical in verse 17. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Or I am the shepherd, the good one. Now the question is this. What is it about Jesus that makes him the good shepherd? What is it about Jesus that makes him essentially good? the natively good and the preeminently good shepherd? Well, it's simply this. I give or lay down my life for the sheep. That's what makes him the shepherd, the good one. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said that? What was it that threatened the sheep? which necessitated his laying down his life to rescue them? What was the dark, looming prospect that so threatened the sheep that nothing less than the self-sacrificial oblation of the incarnate God could rescue, deliver the sheep from their frightening, foreboding holocaust? What was it? Well, in the imagery of the passage itself, the commentators differ about this. It's not an allegory. We've already observed that it is an extended mixed metaphor. But I think in the passage, Jesus identifies the dark threat that looms over his sheep 
and which makes it necessary for him to lay down his life in order to rescue them and to secure their good. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But by way of contrast, notice, but the hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep. And I think that is highly significant. Who does not own the sheep. Jesus is speaking here about the people given to him by his father. Now to be sure, he'll speak more about that in the 17th chapter of this gospel. The father had given him a people who from times eternal he had set his love upon. The hireling who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming, beholds the looming dark threat, and in the face of that danger abandons the sheep. And so the wolf is able to catch and scatter them. And in the imagery of the passage, I think the Lord Jesus is identifying the dark threat. And the dark threat is this, that his sheep whom he owned, that had been given to him, entrusted to him by his father from times eternal in the covenant of redemption, that the sheep were vulnerable to the ravages of wolves, that the sheep whom he owned were in themselves utterly helpless to protect themselves against the intrusion of the wolves. And a number of commentators suggest, well, they say, you really can't identify the wolves with Satan. And in one sense, that is very true. But it seems to me, nonetheless, that is the dark reality because sin is not some independent entity. Sin is that which is fulminated by, driven by, provoked by the devil himself. And the sheep of Christ are helpless to protect themselves. And once again, I think our Lord Jesus in the redemptive flow of the narrative. And I think it's important to keep that in mind as you read through the gospel narratives. You need to remember it is a redemptive flow. It's not some detached narrative. That in that flow that Jesus is once again underscoring the tragic condition of humanity in its totality, his sheep included. And we are powerless and helpless to rescue ourselves from sin and its master Satan. And that is our human condition left to ourselves. We are prey, you and I, to the devil. We are powerless in and of ourselves to rescue ourselves from his dark dominion, from his slaving dominion that would drag us with himself to a lost and a damned eternity. So sin, remember, it is a controlling, mastering power. And it leaves us all by nature helpless and hopeless. And this is the dark reality that the gospel comes in the first place to persuade us concerning, to awaken us to our helplessness. Because until you see 
until I see ourselves as God sees us. Until we see ourselves as we really and truly are in the sight of God. Then the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ will simply pass us by. It will simply go in one ear and out the other. You'll hear it, but it will make no living, meaningful, glorious sense to you. You see, this is why Jesus came from his Father, sent by his Father, that he might give his life to rescue the sheep from the wolf. And your great need in mind tonight, whatever else our needs may include, our great need above all is a sin-defeating, vanquishing, sin-atoning Savior to rescue us. And this is precisely what Jesus was doing when he laid down his life for his sheep, when he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Now the words here in verse 11, for the sheep, suggest to us the whole concept of sacrifice. And as ministers, we usually don't bring our Greek in the pulpit. It's not advised. But the word for here in, in this passage is the Greek preposition huper. And, and it's not the, the preposition ante instead of. You see, you cannot simply make the leap and say, Jesus is here saying that he's going to lay down his life in the place of, in the stead of his sheep. Linguistically, that's a bit sketchy. But theologically... And in the flow of redemptive history, that's exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ is saying. Because interestingly enough, the preposition who pair for in the Gospel of John, it always occurs in a sacrificial context. Always. And this is why Jesus is the ultimate shepherd, because he sacrificed himself. To save his sheep. <clears throat> now the wolf was allowed to vent its fury on the shepherd. And not on the sheep. And that is why he is the shepherd. The good one. Because he stood as it were. Between the wolf and the sheep. The people of God. And the wolf was permitted to vent its fury on the shepherd so that the sheep might be saved. But here we see in stark reality the very wonder of the gospel itself. For even as all hell is let loose on God's perfect shepherd, something more elemental and profound was taking place. And that is why you and I need to go back again and again to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. How we find in that remarkable passage the self-sacrificing atonement of the Lord Jesus so wonderfully explained to us. And we are brought and thereby drawn into the very heart of the atonement of Christ. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. 
He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. For the transgression of my people he was stricken, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And as the wolf vented its fury upon God's perfect shepherd, he was only but doing the will of the heavenly Father. God was using the malice of hell itself, wicked men, to accomplish his saving purpose for his own people. And even as all hell is let loose on God's perfect shepherd, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus did not die as an example of heroic sacrifice in the face of wickedness. No, he died as a sin-bearing sacrifice, bearing in himself the holy judgment of God for the sins of his sheep. Now, all of this is true. But if you really want to make any meaningful sense of Jesus' sin-atoning death as the good shepherd, then there is something you need to understand that I've not addressed up to this point. You need to understand, in order to make sense of our Lord's words in this passage, that he came into the world not as a private person, but as the covenant head of his people. He did not come as a private person, but as the covenant head of his people. Let me explain what I mean. In our first covenant head, Adam, we all died. In Adam, we died. His sin was our sin. He was the representative who stood before God in our place and for our sake. He fell, and when he fell, we fell in him. Adam's sin was our sin. But in God's unfathomable wisdom... He had another covenant head waiting to undo Adam's sin. You see, the cross isn't some kind of legal fiction. How is it that someone else can justly take the punishment that my sin deserves? That doesn't seem right or appropriate. Nonetheless, it is because of who Jesus is. For he is the one appointed of God from times eternal to be the covenant head of his people. His actions were our actions. What he did, he did for us and not for himself. And the significance of Christ's death lies in its covenantal character. God is just to pardon us because our covenant head was substituted by God for us, for the sake of his sheep. And all of us, I trust, understand representative headship. We sit in families. We sit in government. 
do we not? We see it illustrated in the story of David and Goliath. Goliath's victory would have meant victory for the Philistines. David's victory would mean victory for the Israelites. David triumphed and Israel triumphed in David. And it's in his capacity as the covenant head of his people that Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And this is what helps us to understand those great words in chapter 7 or in verse 17. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. For this reason, my father loves me. Does that not sound strange to you? Did not God the Father always love his son? Did not the Father on a number of occasions declare from the heavens, This is my beloved son. Indeed, the Father has always loved his son. But Jesus is speaking of the love here. That his holy obedience as the covenant head of his sheep merited from the Father. There is a human inappropriateness, but there is a divine appropriateness in the cross. Even as his father was executing his righteous judgment on his son, and even as the son was crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The father was in essence saying, if ever I loved you, my Jesus, tis now. And even as the stroke of the divine righteous wrath of God was meted out against our covenant head, the Lord Jesus, the father was loving his son for its obedience even unto death. Now what does all of that say to us? Let me underscore very quickly two things and I'm done. For Christian believers, this is a wonderful assurance couched in our Lord's affirmation here that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. You know Paul's words in Romans 8 and verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us? All things. The Father's non-sparing of the Son is the assurance to us that He will withhold no good thing from us. And when Satan tempts us to wicked thoughts that the Heavenly Father is withholding from us anything good, what ought we to do? We're to go back to the cross. Dear people, always go back to the cross. That is the spiritual antidote to everything. Go back to the cross. And the older I grow in Christ, the more and more I'm persuaded that fear and half-heartedness and the uncertainties and the doubts that can so overwhelm all of us, including myself, are the result of a failure to understand the cross. You see, it's because the Father loved us that he gave his son.
to be the propitiation for our sins. It's because he loved us that he gave his son for us. And surely that is a wonderful encouragement and reassurance that in his son, the father has given us his all. He's held nothing back. He's given us his all. He's got nothing. He's withholding up his sleeve. No, he's given us his all in the giving of his son. But then the second application as I close is this. And this is for those of us who are ministers or any of us who aspire to be ministers. You may be thinking, uh, well, what is it that's so hard to be a minister? And there are times when it's trying and uh, the sheep sometimes bite. <laughs> and that's not always easy to put up with. But if the flock was worth the blood of Christ in God's eyes, then dear brothers, the flock of Christ is worth our efforts on their behalf. There is a cost in Christian ministry and because there is a cost. If you think that you are in any sense being called into the Christian ministry, don't give it any further thought unless you're prepared as much as you are able to put your life on the line for the sheep. If you're not prepared to do that as much as you're able, forget, forget answering any call to the ministry. At times, to see your own family go without. That you might do good to the flock. You may be thinking, well, pastor, that can't be possible. That possibly can't be right. You remember the parable that Jesus told about the 99 and the one that was lost? There's a gospel hymn about that. There were 90 and 9 that safely lay in the shelter in the fold. Well, the hymn version's not really biblical because the 99 were not left in the fold but in the open field and the missing one was so precious that the shepherd leaves all the sheep in the open to go and search for the one that was lost just remember that if they were worth his blood they're worth our efforts they're worth our efforts i am the good shepherd I give my life for the sheep as their representative head in their place and for their sake. Let the wolf do its hellish worst. My father, it's his will that I give my life for the sheep. Let us pray.